You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2001 film, The Man Who Wasn't There. So, this movie takes place in the late 40s, and it's a small town in California, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we follow this man named Ed Crane. He is very—he's middle in his forties, um, very quiet. Doesn't really talk much. Doesn't even really have much of a personality, except one noticeable trait is he chain smokes a lot. Yes. And he's a barber. He he married um, Doris Crane, and her brother was a barber so he married into the business he even describes that in his narration yes and he just his brother is the big talker but he does it so one day a guy comes in and he talks about this new new fad called dry cleaning he thinks for some reason ed even though he doesn't show emotion he thinks that because he the guy's saying i just need a ten thousand dollar loan we can really get this thing we can make a ton of money i just need a silent partner so he hooks ed in Ed, to get the $10,000, Ed is sort of aware that his wife, Doris, is having an affair with um, Big Dave. Because Big Dave runs this retail chain called Nerdlingers. Yes. Which, interesting enough, because I'm talking about how Ed married into the business, Big Dave married into the business, because that's basically run by his wife. Yes. So he blackmails them, saying, I know about the affair, give me $10,000. Which, eventually, Big Dave... Decides to do anonymous, you know, follows through with the plan. He gives the money to the guy. To be specific, he makes a drop. Yeah, a drop. And the note that Ed had left him, it was typewritten, so he wouldn't know who yeah. who who gave it to him. But it also made the impression upon him that it, it wasn't Ed at all. It was somebody yes. else that yeah, was aware it was, of it. He sent it anonymously. I sent it anonymously and said, if you don't pay up, I will tell Ed mm-hmm. about you and his wife. Make the handoff. He gets the money, gives it to the guy, but then Big Dave calls him, calls him at night, and he f- figures it out because he went to the um, he Tolliver. Got, Big went Dave, to Tolliver, beat him up, right. got the information out of it, and he figures out it was him. Dave says, "What kind of man are you?" You know, he says, "If you know, if you wanted to hit me, scream at me, yell at me, it's understand. I deserve it. But you do this behind the back, and you still don't show any emotion. And even now, when I'm confronting you, you're acting. You know, you don't. You're still kind of lying. And he, he gets into a fight. He's trying to kill him, but because Big Dave had this knife, he said he got from a Japanese soldier because he always brags about his war service. Yeah, he grabs the knife, kills Big Dave." And the next day, his wife is suspected in the murder because he thought he figured she was because there's also something wrong with the accounting because she's the accountant for Nerdlinger, so she's sent to jail. From there on, they hire his brother hires this big time lawyer who's very 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 expensive, named Schneider. Yeah, and they work on the case. 
And it looks like he's the one thing he brings up is this Heisenberg uncertainty principle, saying the less, the more you look at something, the less it makes sense. And he gets the private investigators to reveal that Big Dave is not the war hero. He he's always portraying himself yeah. to be. He just did a clerical work at a navy yard, and that was even wasn't even that long. He got kicked out pretty early for getting into a fight. Yeah. So, so they were going to use that, but while that happened, his wife dies and commits suicide in prison and he later reveals that the probably the reason for that is she found out she was pregnant right and so while that's going on um ed crane starts hanging out with his friend of his and mainly her daughter his daughter named birdie and she's a piano she plays the piano a lot a lot of classical beethoven music he becomes fixated on her obsessed with her he even decides to try to very Susan Alexander-esque, get her into, you know, pursue it as a career. He arranges this meeting with her, with this uh, talent guy This works with a bunch of uh, musicians, but he sort of says she just doesn't have the heart for it. Yeah, she plays technically proficiently, but she but there's no expression, no emotion in it, and he puts it very colorfully, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's the, that's the gist of it. Yeah, and, but while she's driving, she just tries to seduce him, trying to, in a way she thinks of paying him back but right before he gets her to stop but then they get into a car accident and at that point he's arrested because they found Tolliver at a pond because Big Dave killed him he didn't just rough him up and get the information out he killed him yes but they think Ed killed Tolliver instead of killing Big Dave right and so that's sort of near the end where now he's on the getting ready for the chair but he tries to get Reed and Schneider back, and he mortgages his entire house. And yeah. Reed and Schneider says, "I don't really work that cheap, but this time yeah, I'll, I'll." I kind of owe it to you. Yeah. yeah. And he start, and then he then he makes this big spiel about how Ed is the modern man in this in his closing speech. Yeah. It's everybody. He supposedly it's really good. Everybody's getting worked up, but right when it's about to work for him, um, his brother, oh, his brother-in-law. It, punches him and attacks him and says that same phrase what kind of man are you yes it results in a mistrial he cannot no longer afford reading schneider so he just gets us a court appointed lawyer and the lawyer just tells him to basically throw your hands at the mercy of the court it doesn't work he gets the chair yeah basically the end of the movie is him walking to the chair and wondering what's going to be next yeah. And I'm not sure if you like this movie I'm a Cohen brothers fan cuz they're both well, Ethan was a philosophy major before he started to pursue a career in film. So I always said, we got to do a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> and I figured we could, we could definitely do something like Fargo or No Country for Old Men. But everybody does those movies, especially yeah. looking at it philosophically. And if I did Bill Lebowski, I would be quoting it all the time. So I would be too distracting to do a show because you would probably be telling me to shut up. <laughs> so I figured I'd do this one because this is the yeah. one nobody talks about. I yeah. don't think a lot of people, this is always the Coen Brothers movie that gets thrown under the radar. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, I can I can see why you like it. Uh, uh, I know I kept using this phrase as I was watching it and we you know cross pads I'd say you know it's kind of a goofy movie it is kind of a goofy well, that's movie that's the Coen Brothers yeah uh, it's very much Coen Brothers um, but there, there, there's a few threads in there I have to say I'm always uh, kind of impressed with the these films the, the, the phrase that always comes to mind with me is Rorschach inkblot test um, they're they're uh, designed ambiguously enough 
to where you can you can get several different readings of the film and just kind of uh, uh, reviewing uh, uh, several reviews and several reactions to it, including those that are worrying about what the philosophy is behind it. There were quite quite a wide variety of responses to it. Um, one I thought was particularly amusing, uh, uh, kind of cashed in on a small book written by a philosopher by the name of Harry Frankfurt called Bullshit. Um, and that's the last time I'll use the word, <laughs> but that's the name of the book. And, um, uh, that's definitely one of the themes in this film it is this man is surrounded by people that are, if not masters, at least uh, mavens in the fine art of BSing. And you see it from the get-go. Uh, Frank, uh, as is rather typical for barbers, I mean, it's a mm -hmm. stereotype, but sometimes stereotypes are based on fact. Um, Frank, he's an expert on everything as he's cutting people's hair and so forth. And, and you can never stop, never talking. stops talking. every scene. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, he's not the only character like this. Uh, 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 big Dave is like this. We, we find out, uh, through the progression of the film, as you pointed out earlier, um, he's weaving tales about his past that simply uh, are not true and telling terribly off color jokes, uh, about, uh, his alleged experiences in the Pacific during World War II. Um, and, you know, uh, um, Doris seems to really like these stories, and she's really taken with him, uh, with all his BS. And his wife is just sort of doesn't even really he's completely just out there even because we have that scene later on after yes. he dies yes she starts relating the story about ufos which we'll get into that later yeah but even when they're having that dinner party early on she's just completely aloof and just yeah. looking off into space and nerding and nerding and later nerding. is her name and and he she's the family that he had married into so that he now has a lucrative position in that department store yeah she's very quiet she looks a little, uh, to use a phrase, you brought it up, alien. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Ed comes across as certainly out of place, if not alien, at least alienated from all the BSers in his life. And, uh, you know, uh, he comes to rely, he, he's taken in by a BSer, uh, Tolliver. Uh, it, it should have been relatively apparent to him that the guy was playing an old con, very old con. Yeah. You come in, you talk as if you're just trying to blow off steam about this opportunity that you offered to this fool and he wouldn't take it. And you, ex and the con that plays that con uh, does it knowing full well that uh, at least there's a chance that somebody will react as Ed did and say, oh, well, you know, okay, I'll do it. Because it doesn't seem to be a direct uh, push on him, right? Mm -hmm. So he does fall for it and and uh, can't find the $10,000, so he decides to blackmail Big Dave because he knows Big Dave and his own wife are having this affair. Um, you know, so it, it's, it, it's, it's humorous in a way because he is uh, uh, kind of inundated in this sea of BS. And uh, he, he has to hope that he can defend his wife's life with a master BS or, well, at least a maven. And uh, his own, ultimately, and then he can't afford him, right? Uh, that's all very funny. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, like you said, it's a typical Coen Brother film. It's they're never too terribly serious. There's always this goofy underlay, and and the goofy underlay with this one is certainly just the amount of BS in the world. And I I think he captures in the person of Ed. I think a, a reaction most of us probably have. You know, at least one time or another in life when we're just inundated with that kind of BS. And this is going to sound strange, but it brought to mind uh, um, the reaction. I remember reading this in one of his essays. I cannot recall which one uh, that Admiral Stockdale had after coming home from the Hanoi Hilton, where all communications was at a premium. Um, You did not have the luxury of BSing, um, although they did with some of their communications, try to entertain each other, but they had to be very economical with their communications and very careful with it because the consequences of being caught at least for three years, three or four years was intense torture and uh, long-term isolation, often in rooms with no lights for months. Um, so having lived in that kind of, as it were, uh, communicatively uh, economic and stressful environment, he came back to the regular world here in the United States. He had this phrase he came up with because he felt that same kind of inundation of all of the BS. He called it the big wide world of yakety yak. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I, I think the film does a good job of putting us in Ed's shoes and, uh, having us feel his response to the big wide world of Yakidiak, which I think ultimately is a very passive response and uh, uh, one where he's decided that he is going to let, as it were, the currents of life carry him. He doesn't make a lot of choices for himself. He kind of lets the circumstances dictate where he's going to go. And the one time he does try to make a choice and, and, and in some way better himself through his own actions, uh, A, he picks the wrong way to do it, blackmail. Two, he ends up with a whole series of untoward consequences that he certainly didn't project. He doesn't come off as very smart in this no, movie. No, he does not. He, he comes off either as very naive or just plain not smart. Mm-hmm. And the naivete comes in being hooked into Tolliver's um, con there i mean you could see that a mile away and even before he pays the guy off because he first sends that blackmail letter and gandolfini before i mean uh big 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 dave big dave big dave before uh he uh figures it out he says i know who it is it's this guy that was trying to tell me about this dumb scheme for ten thousand dollars about dry cleaning that should have been right there saying oh no i've been suckered in yeah but he still goes ahead with it yeah and even uh actually as he's giving the guy off he's like you're not going to try to rip me off, are you? And then, of course, Tolliver's like, get a lawyer. He's throwing he's you know, hemming and hawing. But yeah. he, he still goes ahead with it, even though there's so he has had so many warning signs. Yeah, I know. It's it interesting. I mean, and I think maybe partially, I mean, this again, it's a Rorschach inkblot, uh, this darn movie. Just typical for these guys, the Coen brothers. But that might be kind of the symbolism of the aliens, which I know you wanted to get to at some mm-hmm. point, you know, he's reading an article about Roswell 
And then there is a kind of a visual motif with the, the hubcap. It's a disc, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's hints of, obviously, from Ann Nerdlinger's story about Big Dave being having been abducted by aliens, <laughs> right? And then there's that very peculiar scene toward the end before he's, he's about to be uh, executed, which I think is a dream sequence, by the way. Pretty sure it's a dream. Um, uh, where he... His uh, cell door is open, and he walks through the mazes of the hallways as he talks about life being a maze. And uh, you're not being able to understand it until you get up above the maze, right? And and look at the thing from a, a very high perspective, and it all kind of falls into place and makes sense, right? Uh, all the while he's telling you this, he's walking out the doors of the compound there looks up in the sky and here's that same disc it looks suspiciously like like the hubcap it's a ufo it's clearly a ufo it's Mm -hmm. it's shining its beam on him and so forth and then he's woken up to be executed after that little sequence um but in any case i think the the symbology there it probably is the fact that he is oh get ready for the term alienated um but uh Having he's taken on that very passive, almost only observer role of his entire life, and he's he's let himself be carried by the currents of events instead of actively determining where he's going to go. And so, in a way, he's got this objective um, relationship to his life, as if he was just an observer, as if he was an alien <laughs> hovering overhead watching. Uh, I think that's the import of that. Uh, symbology. Yeah, and one of the things it reminded me of was the famous novella The Stranger by Albert Camus. And that in that story, the character, main character in that movie, who's also in the end going to be put to death for mur- killing somebody, he's very like emotionless, doesn't you know show a lot of emotion, but also just sort of lets things go and carry yeah. where they be. He doesn't really protest too much. Yeah, he, he protests very at the end, but he never tries to change his predicament. Yeah, and the things he does are uh, several. Several of the things he chooses to do in that, uh, uh, or be allowed to be sucked into uh, in that novella are immoral things, right? And it doesn't seem to affect him terribly that they are immoral. And that's the same thing with Ed here. Um, um, it, it gets back to, to use another, um, uh, to make reference to another existential philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre has this uh, concept of inauthenticity. Um, and, and he says that it's, it's kind of the plight of a lot of modern man, to use a phrase that's used in the film, uh, by, by uh, Reed and Schneider uh, in that, very eloquent defense of him that ends up not working right uh he he makes the case that uh uh ed in effect has lived this kind of inauthentic existence he is not in control uh or as it were creative enough to be somebody that could have hatched such a dastardly but also very clever plan and uh um that does uh, it does reflect Sartre's uh, concept of inauthenticity, which again is the the notion that most people go through life uh, not really attempting to take control of their lives, but they kind of ride those eddies and currents of 
events around them, let, ma- other, let people around them make decisions on what kind of uh, life they'll live, what career they'll have, what relationships they will fall, fall into instead of choose to have, that sort of thing. So um, I think you're right in bringing up Camus and, and, and existentialists in general because that is a big message they have mm-hmm. uh, for us. It's, it's easy to do, live that way. It's hard not to, given all of the information and relationships that you will run into in your life. Uh, it's probably damn near impossible to live your life completely under your own control, uh, simply because you are a member of society. And as a member of society, you're thrown into a lot of relationships and a lot of uh, 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 dealings that... Um, uh, they're foisted upon you, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to strike that balance between being, as it, to use uh, Sartre's terminology, authentic, you know, doing actions that come from your own being and your own value judgments, and being inauthentic, playing particular roles that you've fallen into, so to speak. Um, you have to do both. You can't function if you don't do both. Um, but you have to strike that balance. And I think part of the, maybe the lesson of this film is uh, you, you don't want to err, err too, too, too much on that side of passivity um, because you'll end up uh, uh, dying and uh, not having gleaned any uh, important meaning out of your life, done anything important with your life. Um, but also you will have fallen into perhaps doing things that are uh, abhorrent in nature. And not even realizing it. Not even realizing it. I don't think Ed completely realizes what a disaster he's made of other people's lives uh, as well as his own. Yeah, what you talk about existential, existentialism and Albert Camus, those were one of the big influences on the famous Hollywood genre of film noir. And the Coen brothers are particularly fond of this genre. And they always, if you notice their movies, they do different authors. Like their 1990 film Miller's Crossing is very much influenced by Dashiell Hammett, particularly The Glass Key. And then they did The Big Lebowski, which is one of the most famous, that even with the name is, you know, taking a little look at The Big uh, the big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. But taking, you know, a Philip Marlowe-esque protagonist and replacing it with this burnt-out hippie as the protagonist. Yeah. And then with this movie, it's more James N. Kane, James M. Kane, who wrote um, The Postman Always Rings Twice and most famously Double Indemnity. Stories always have to do with adultery, some blackmail, and murder. Yeah. And what's what, what's taking, what, like with The Big Lebowski, what's changing the protagonist, with you think of somebody like Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity and this guy who's, you know, who's doing this all for the worst reasons but he's not he's not passive in that movie yes. he's doing he's he's killing the husband himself he's taking very great risks you know doing this like but not with this character he's completely passive yeah. and even when he screws up he doesn't really get that upset yeah and he just he just like I said he just goes wherever the wind carries yeah and well and and you bring up and that's a very interesting contrast you draw between uh um double indemnity in this film with regard to that main character, the Fred McMurray character. I can't recall his name. Um, you're right. He's very active in, in uh, you know, once again, getting back to that uh, 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 exhortation the uh, existentialists give to us to kind of treat our, or take a very active role with our own lives. And some of them will say even 
treat it as a, a work of art, right? And, and you've got to worry about the aesthetics uh, as you, as it were, develop that life and so forth. Um, uh, the message of that film is a little bit disturbing, I think, um, in that it says, look, even even if you adopt that more active life and, you know, as it were, exercise your reason to uh, um, instantiate um, the value judgments you've made in your life and so forth, uh, even then, even then, monstrosity can result. Um, You can still fall into uh, immoral behavior, even if it's freely chosen on your own part. And I think that's an interesting uh, critique of existentialism in general. Um, uh, even going back as far as Friedrich Nietzsche, who was kind of a progenitor of the existentialist movement, um, he 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 tells us to treat our lives as works of art, and that you know there's going to be this uh, Ubermensch because the Overman, sometimes translated as a Superman, these, these people that are these kind of artists of life who have uh, kind of overcome and. Uh, in some ways supplanted traditional morality and uh, another film that comes to mind that has that kind of a message to it and uh, the warning that it can lead to immoral monstrosity is rope Mm -hmm. and um, uh, I think that is a lesson very well considered and uh, I can tell you in, in the case of several existential philosophers they have because they adopted those kinds of um, that kind of view of life where there almost is no objective moral standard against which to to judge that artistic life that they they've taken up um, they ended up um, um, aligning themselves with with uh, abhorrent political philosophies Martin Heidegger another one is a classic case in point uh, wrote a great, uh, almost poetic work called "Being in Time," where he talks about authenticity and and life as a work of art. Um, he allied himself with the Nazi Party, and even did not stand up for one of his mentors, Edmund Husserl, when he was summarily kicked out of academy, and um, did some very, very heinous things. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre aligned himself with Stalinist uh, Russia and communism. So, uh, interesting. I know that I kind of went off on a tangent there, but it's interesting uh, that you bring that up because, you know, Ed's the classic kind of passive case um, that the uh, existentialists say we should not be. But it's arguably these guys... And uh, the character, the Fred McMurray character in uh, Double Indemnity, uh, at least instantiate the uh, uh, the active life that they tell you you should take. But then that active life also runs the risk uh, of being of falling into immorality and monstrosity. And not even just with the blackmail. It's, it's sort of the, the relationship um, Ed has with the character of Bertie. She's the daughter of this, you know, this lawyer, but he's like a small-time lawyer. He's the one that tells him to get ner- yeah. uh, Schneider. And she, he meets her first at the party, and she's playing music, but you know, like all this classical music, and he's always going back to that house to listen to her play. 
and he even goes to the talent show she's at in high school to listen to her play. And he's even listening to her. He's like, she's got talent. Anybody can see that. She needs somebody to mentor her. I'll be that guy. I don't even ask for money. And he's always playing like, I just, you know, I just want to be the good guy yeah. and help her out. But he's not really being true with what his motives are. He's, 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 even when she tries to make the move on him in the car, he still acts with disgust. But in the end, it's sort of like deep down, you have a feeling that that is still what he's looking for, even though he's too afraid to come out with it. Yeah. Um, and it, I, it, it reminds me definitely a lot of the Susan Alexander, Charles Foster Kane relationship, even yeah. though Birdie is much younger than the Yeah. Susan and he's not nearly as controlling as. Kane either. Kane has total and utter disregard for Susan Alexander. Um, I think he actually does have regard for Bertie. And I think he has an int. This is my reading of this mm-hmm. relationship. Um, I think he does have an intimation that disaster looms for him because of what he, uh, because of the blackmail. He's going to eventually be discovered. I think he, in somewhere in the back of his mind, he realizes this. So he's thinking, okay, my time's limited. I have to leave some kind of positive mark because up until this point, I have literally only been the barber, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody seems to remember his name. Um, they, they refer to him first as the barber as opposed to Ed most of the time. Uh, so he's thinking of all this and he's thinking, I've got to leave some kind of positive mark. And he fixates on Bertie because she is a technically proficient um, piano player playing bait always playing beethoven um but it turns out that she's uh, and this is a, a kind of a disappointment to him i think um she's just as tawdry as every other character in this film uh, including his wife and the, she thinks it's just a hobby for her she's never been like passionate yeah. about it to pursue a career as a pianist and she thinks that all he wants is sensual gratification too uh, or that that would be sufficient thanks. So I think he's a little, and this is saying something for Ed, by the way, I think he's a little shocked by that, right? Because he typically doesn't have very strong emotional reactions to anything. And then, of course, the automobile accident occurs at that point. Um, but um, I, I, I think that that's how I read that. Yeah. That he wasn't... He wasn't like had this ulterior motive. Yeah, I, I think I think he was actually sincere in just wanting to help her, and then he was a little, or for him, greatly disturbed that a she didn't really want the help in the first place, but b she she would think that what he wanted in return is what she was offering in that car. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.automatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.